0: Amen. We're seeking to find comfort because we live in an uncomfortable world, and we do that by prioritizing God's presence. Prioritize means it comes prior to, it comes first, it comes beforehand. We prioritize God's presence so that his presence might become part of and infused in all of our other traditions and celebrations through Advent and, of course, on Christmas. One of the traditions we have in the Helwig family is actually today, I don't know if you know this, but December 6th is St. Nicholas Day. And St. Nicholas Day remembers the real historical person, a man named Nicholas, who would come and give presents to people, particularly caring for those who were poor and needy in any way. So this morning when my kids woke up their shoes were laid out by the fireplace, and they had a little candy cane and some other little things in each one of their shoes. Well, in those presents, they all got one of these. You probably can't see it, but this is a picture of Ron Weasley, famous from the world of Harry Potter and their fantastical, magical, wizarding reality. Well, this is supposed to be this little magical popper thing from the Harry Potter books. When you pull the top off, it explodes, and something great happens. Well, the way the toy makers did this is they designed it so when you pull the top off, there's a little something in there that's supposed to explode and make this great popping noise. So Mickey and I thought, the kids would really like this. It'd be awesome. And the kids come down, and the first kid grabs the popper and pulls it, and nothing happened. Oh... Well, that's because inside, there was this small little strip of cardboard. You might not be able to see it. It's tiny. And what was supposed to happen was when you pulled the popper, the cardboard pulled apart, and that's what made this tiny little explosion go off. Well, instead of that happening, this little piece of cardboard just came out. So after we'd opened the gifts, we had to take the cardboard and snap them, and they made these really fun popping sounds, but we had the experience of Micken and I, okay, let's be honest, mostly Micken, had planned something we thought would be really fun for the kids. But even though we had our plans perfectly in place, things didn't go according to plan. Have you ever had that experience in your life. Do you know what I'm talking about? It's like you've thought things through, you've laid out the roadmap, you've got everything in mind, but even though all of your intentions are spot on and everything is well organized, things simply don't go according to plan. Even worse, sometimes for all of our best intentions, things can go terribly wrong. When in your life have your best intentions gone not as planned. I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. And and the reason is because our best intentions going not as planned can not only relate to simple little gifts like this, it can actually happen even in more serious circumstances as well. Right? Like you plan out the big project at work and you know that you're going to make your boss happy and your customer is satisfied. But for all your best intentions, the project is a flop. Or this relationship that you're pouring time into, maybe to heal it or strengthen it or deepen it. But for all your best intentions, something breaks and the relationship falls You have that conversation coming up, and you know it's an important conversation, so you think about what you're going to say, but when the moment comes, the wrong words come out of your mouth. When have your best intentions gone not as planned? Turns out this happens not just on the individual level, but it can happen on a societal or a cultural or a community level level, as well. What we're going to find out as we continue to read in the book of Isaiah today is even religion, something ultimately at its best given by God to people for our good and the good of others, even religion can end up going not as planned. And so here's what we're going to talk about. What do you do when things don't go according to your plan? What do you do when your best intentions go terribly wrong? wrong. I'll tell you one of the things I've been reflecting on. When really significant consequential stuff in my life goes terribly wrong, I almost inevitably, I almost always ask myself, "Where can I find the power to make things right?" See, because I live in a world where people love our Power and we think that the right power can fix just about anything. We think that the right political power might be able to fix our country. We think that the right relational power might get people to do what we want. We think that the right positional power, if we get that promotion, might make things go better in our lives. Maybe the power of controlling things will solve our problems, or maybe the power of excusing ourselves from everything. Maybe that's what we need. I know in my life, when things go terribly wrong, I often turn to power to find the solutions. What about you? What power do you look to when things go terribly wrong in your life? What we're going to talk about today is that people who want to follow Jesus... People who want to look at their lives, look at the joys in their lives, look at the struggles in their lives and want to live those lives in the way Jesus taught and not just because they should or because somebody told them to but because it turns out Jesus actually knew more about living life than anybody who's ever walked this earth. And do you know why? Because he is the maker and giver of life. People who want to live their lives following Jesus can discover that he has given us a power greater than any other that we can turn to when things go terribly wrong. And we're going to talk about that power at the end of this sermon, but for now, I want to get into it by looking again at the story of God's ancient people, the Israelites. And it turns out that as we read the story of ancient Israel, we discover that so much of what they learned Thousands of years ago, in their culture and in their time, is incredibly practical for us thousands of years later in our lives and in our culture and in our time. So, you may recall uh, last week, if you didn't hear last week's sermon, I'd really encourage you to go and listen to last week's sermon. You can find it on our church website, you can find it on YouTube. We started in the book of Isaiah, a prophet who lived in Israel thousands of years ago. Uh, This book is found in what we call the Old Testament in the Bible. And we read Isaiah chapter 40. And Isaiah chapter 40 was written when the Israelites were living under the rule of a foreign government, the Babylonians. And that time period was called the exile. It was called the exile because God promised his people that he would bless them, that he'd make them a great nation, And because he blessed them, they would be a blessing to others. But the land and the nation they were supposed to be had been taken away, and instead they were living in a foreign land. They were suffering in great ways. Well, Israel called out to their God. They'd walked themselves into misery, and they called out and said, God, we are suffering. What are we going to do? And God looked at them, and he didn't say, well, you got what's coming to you. He looked at them, and he didn't say, well, maybe if you just had enough faith. He looked at them, and he didn't say, well, if you'd done what I'd said in the first place, God said none of those things. Rather, when Israel was suffering, God looked at them and said, comfort. I will give you comfort. And isn't that what we long for in our lives as well when things are going terribly wrong and our life is hurting in any way isn't it true that deep down we just need some comfort to help us get through well we're going to read today from isaiah chapter 58 i'd encourage you right now uh, open your bible open the bible app if you're on our events page right now uh, isaiah 58 will be in the bible app But open that up and we're going to find out what happens a little bit later on in this story of God and the Israelites from long ago. And here's how Isaiah 58 starts. God has promised his comfort to his people. Some time has passed. And here's what we read next. Isaiah 58, verse 1. Shout it out loud. Do not hold back raise your voice like a trumpet, declare to my people their rebellion and to the descendants of Jacob their sins. What in the world went wrong? Declare their rebellion and their sins? Hold on a second, hold on a second. When I'm reading a story, let me tell you how I want that story to go, right? I want to meet the hero and I want the hero to be in trouble And I want to experience my desire for the hero to overcome and win. And then when the hero overcomes their suffering, I want them to walk out into the sunset and live happily ever after. And we were moving that direction, right? Israel was in exile, in captivity under Babylon. God heard their cry and said, I'm going to comfort you. I'm going to free you. And it turns out that this part of Isaiah, chapter 58 happens after the exile. God has brought them out of exile. Some time has passed. So this is the point where we hear, now God and his people are in a wonderful relationship and everything is going fine. But instead, we hear that they are in rebellion and they're living in sin. What went wrong? Well, it turns out Isaiah is actually putting this here on Purpose. So here's our context. Yes, first of all, we are post-exile, but also Isaiah is writing words to ancient people that he intends to have a universal application. Because here's what we know about us as humans. Whenever things start going right in our lives— Ancient Israel is freed from Babylon. They start to rebuild Jerusalem. They start to rebuild their temple. Their society comes back together. Their religion is getting reinstated so they can be with God. Whenever things start going well in our lives, there's always a danger that we might forget what really matters and simply lean into what we like the most. So what we're going to find is as the prophet speaks to ancient Israel, he speaks about dangers that are true for all people of all time. And the reason for this condemnation is what we read about next. Uh, We find out that even though Israel has been freed and things are starting to go well, they've discovered a bit of a poison present in the system of their lives. Here's how the story continues. Day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways, as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed?" So here's what we find. We find that Israel is no longer under the exile, and they can worship God the way that God desires them to worship, but as they're doing that, within their religion, there is a significant danger. And that danger has two parts. First of all, um, the prophet is talking about this prayer practice called fasting. Fasting. And the people are fasting and asking God to do his good work through them. But it turns out that while they're doing the very thing God wants them to do, they're doing it in a way that has false appearances. And those false appearances have created a poisoned religion. And these are universal risks. I mean, you know what I'm talking about. Think about it. Have you ever experienced in your own life Have you ever done this yourself? Have you ever known somebody around you who makes it look like their life is all put together, who makes it look like they're doing things for the right reason, for altruistic, compassionate reasons, and yet inside, something completely different, often sinister, is actually going on. The reason God is calling out Israel is because even though they've been freed to pursue God, they're doing it in a way that has false appearances and creates a system of poisoned religion. And then it goes on to make specific these general ideas. We find out that even though uh, the Israelites are worshiping God in the way that God designed them to in many respects, they're actually doing some things horribly wrong. And here's how it goes on. On the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? So the prophet makes specific the charges that are being leveled against Israel. And again, notice, they are fasting and praying to God like God wants them to do. They are participating in worship the way God wants them to do. And yet... As they do these good things, they're doing them in a poisoned way. Namely, they are participating in exploitation, conflict, and violence. And this is kind of amazing, because think about it. Within their memory, Israel's memory, they remember what it was to be exploited by Babylon. They remembered what it was to suffer the conflict of this foreign nation. And they remembered what it was to suffer violence from other people. And yet, the very things they suffered under, and they cried out for comfort from, they are now causing that same suffering to others. They have caused for others the suffering they fled from themselves. I bet you've seen this in your lives as well, haven't you? It, it's like, we have this thing in our story, we have this experience in our life where some wrong has been done to us. You know, maybe you've got a story about you and your parents where one of your parents uh, uh, hurt you, wronged you in some terrible way, and, and that wrong, you sort of of, I'm never going to do that again. Or maybe in your workplace or some other relationship, you were, uh, you were the victim of some sort of violence. You say, I'm never going to do that again. But the very hurts that wound us, we can find ourselves eventually in life using those same things to wound others. And it's terrible, and it's heartbreaking. But it happened thousands of years ago to Israel, and it happens tragically in our world today as well. So we know that this danger is true. We know it in our lives. We know it's a risk in our churches Because it's been something that humanity has struggled with universally. And so we cry out again God, God, okay, I get it. We live in an uncomfortable world. It's not just uncomfortable, but it's a pretty dangerous place. Things can go pretty terribly wrong, but God, throw me a bone here. What am I supposed to do? We talked last week about how God gives us uh, uh, comfort in three ways He gives us a hope for the future. Not based on what we can see, but we know what God can do. He gives us a vision for his justice. And justice is not just a uh, a vague hope, but it's the specific things God will accomplish. And ultimately, he gives us the promise of his presence. And his presence is the true comfort. Well, God expands on that vision for justice here. He says, I freed you, Israel, from unjust places. And now you're causing injustice for others, so I'm going to remind you about the vision of justice I already gave you. And we get this beautiful passage describing what does it mean to truly worship God, to truly pray, and to truly fast. Here's the vision we get. Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? to loose the chains of injustice and to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. So, when we see the danger of poisoned religion that is polluting ancient Israel, God responds by giving them the cure to that poisoned religion. And as always, the cure God gives is directly contrary to the poison infecting them. The cure, God says, is justice, generosity, community, Which is exactly why during Advent we're talking about how can you make this season about prioritizing God's presence, doing that by prioritizing giving to others in the same way God has given to you. Why? Because that is the way God has designed it to be. And it turns out this whole passage is set in the context of talking about Sabbath. Sabbath is the ancient practice of taking one day a week where you cease from all working and you simply rest because God desires his ways to be restful for his people but get this get this it's really interesting in Isaiah 40 we read about how God gives a vision of his justice and he provides that vision to his people because we know vision is inspiring and energizing and motivating but now God takes it a step further That vision is meant to be comforting to God's people and now we see the same comfort God offers to his people. He invites them to participate in offering to others. If the poison of sin is a downward spiral, it can infect our own lives and through our own lives, it can infect whole systems and societies, it can even infect the very created world we live in, if sin is a downward poisonous spiral, then what we see God doing here is working a virtuous cycle where the goodness God gives to us, he invites us to participate in giving to others. And that could not be more hopeful because the hope lies not in our ability to do it, but in our knowledge that we are doing it with God. And with that hope, we can find comfort. But it doesn't end there. It actually gets even better. Because God then paints us a picture of what will happen when we join him in doing his good work in the world. Here's how the prophet describes what happens when we take our lives and join in the work that God gives us. It says, Then your light will break forth like the dawn, and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you, and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call, and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help, and he will say, Here I am. This passage is brilliant. Notice this. Some of these words, light, healing, righteousness, glory, these are words that describe God. God is the giver of light into dark places. God is the healer of our wounds and afflictions. God is the one who brings righteousness and justice to unjust worlds. God is the one whose glory is a comforting presence, and yet, the prophet uses those same words, light, healing, righteousness, to describe his people, to describe you and me. And that's because here's the ultimate result of choosing to live our lives the way God has called us to do it. The result is that we learn the way that God always chooses to accomplish his purposes in cooperation with his people. God's not interested in simply coming down and being like, get out of the way, I'm going to take care of it. But we actually see God choosing to work in cooperation with his people from the very beginning. I mean, think about it. The opening story of the Bible. We meet a God who is perfect in all ways, and a God who will learn is love. What is love? Love is perfect relationship. But what does God do with that perfect relationship? Does he just sort of sit back and go, my life's good, I guess I'm fine. No, God chooses to create humanity to share that perfect relationship with them. When humanity messes it up and the poison of sin enters the world, God says, all right, what am I going to do? i got to fix the poison of this world. What does he do? Does he say, hey, humans, get out of my way. You messed it up in the first place, get out of my way. No, God chooses Israel and says, I'm going to bless you so that you can be a blessing to others. God starts to work his cure to the poison of sin with people. Well, Israel, as we're reading today, tries and fails many times. So God has to take the next step in curing the poison of sin. And what does he do? Does he say, hey, humans, get out of my way. You've messed this up a couple times. I'm just going to take care of it. No, God does one of the most radical things imaginable. He takes on human form. God becomes a human. Jesus was fully God and fully human. So that when Jesus chose to suffer and die on the cross, it was the work of a human that helped accomplish the purposes of God. And sure enough, after the resurrection... When the sin-defeating power of God was unleashed in the world, what did God say? Did he say, now I've finally taken out of it, so get out of the way? No. God established the church so that yet again, his people could work in cooperation with him to accomplish his purposes. And here's what that means. Whatever discomfort, whatever suffering, whatever injustice, that you're hurting under in your life, or that the people you love are hurting under in your life, here's the breathtaking, hope-giving invitation God is making to you. He wants you to join him in being the solution to the problem of sin in this world. Not because you have to be strong enough, but because God wants to be strong enough through Brings us, as always, to your move. How are you going to celebrate Advent? How are you going to purposefully prepare over the next three weeks to fully celebrate the coming of Christ, God, with us? Last week, we gave you the first challenge by asking this question. During Advent, how will you prioritize God's presence this Advent season. Prioritize means it comes first. And if you're going to prioritize something, you've got to do the work to make it a priority. Just like if you schedule a lunch date with somebody, you open your calendar and you write it down. If you've got a big project at work and you know the tyranny of the urgent is going to crowd out that project, you put it in your schedule. You block out time. You say, this is a priority, so I'm going to do it. This Advent season, how are you going to prioritize God's presence by making time i would challenge you to make this time 20 minutes a day at least three if not five days a week where the only thing you're doing is stopping creating some stillness and silence in this cacophony of noise in the world around us stopping to practice stillness so that the presence of god might be where you find comfort But here's what we learned. Just like ancient Israel, our own religious intentions, as good as they are, can go terribly wrong. Even if I make 20 minutes a day, five days a week, to prioritize God's presence, even if I do that, which is an awesome thing, you should totally do it, I could still find myself living with false appearances and a poisoned religion. So we come back to our opening question if that's a danger in our lives, for my best intentions to go terribly wrong, what power am I going to look to to overcome that danger? Which brings us to our last observation on the text today. See, embedded in this story, God's people chosen by God, blessed by God, empowered by God to join him in his work, God's people Suffering the poison of sin and their best intentions going terribly wrong, God confronts them with that reality. He says, You're messing things up. And embedded in that confrontation is an invitation to, like I said at the beginning, the most powerful thing we could possibly do when things go terribly wrong in our own lives. It's an ancient Christian practice that is one of the most countercultural and most enduringly transformational practices you could possibly engage. If you want to prioritize God's presence, then the most powerful way you could do it is by practicing confession. Because confession is often the most powerful work a person can do. What I'm saying here is really uh, kind of befuddling to a lot of people in the world. What I'm saying is we need to prioritize God's presence by practicing stillness and silence and by practicing confession. I mean, in our world's wisdom, you've got to try harder, work harder, go faster. You've got to power up and overcome. And what we're saying is we need to slow down and stop and confess where we're wrong. But don't be confused. Stillness And confession are powerful for God's work to be accomplished in your life. So here's what I want to ask you. Will you confess your sins today? This practice of confession, which is sort of embedded in the Isaiah text, it was made explicit in a number of other places, but not least of which one of Jesus' own disciples Arguably the disciple that Jesus had the most intimate friendship with, a man named John. Here's how Jesus' disciple John wrote about confession. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins, and purify us from all unrighteousness. You know, when you're seeking comfort in this uncomfortable world, so often we find ourselves doing it by striving, working, going, do, 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 you know, non-stop. It's like, we think to ourselves, maybe if I'm just good enough, maybe if I just work hard enough and I'm good enough, then maybe I'll earn God's comfort. And God responds with one of the most freeing and life-giving messages you could possibly hear. We don't need to be good enough. We simply need to admit we're not so that God's goodness can be sufficient for us. And that is why confession is powerful. So here's what we're going to do. I'd invite you to to just sort of try and create some space right now in your heart and in your mind. I know if you've got kids running around at home, this can be hard. So maybe if you need to pause and just help get them settled for just a minute. And in a moment, we're going to read an adaptation of a traditional prayer of confession, a prayer that has been used by millions of people throughout the church's history. And I'd invite you to take seriously the power of confession in your life so that you can quit trying to be good enough and let God's power be sufficient in you. And after we confess, we're going to proclaim the good news that in Christ there is always forgiveness and this confession and forgiveness will lead us one into one more worship song where we we respond to the God of light whose light will break forth through us and then in the middle of that song uh, our youth pastor Nikki Nickerson is going to come up and lead us in communion in receiving the bread and the cup of Christ if you haven't got the communion elements I'd encourage you to to pause and make sure you have uh, some morsel of food and some drink with which we can share the work of Christ in our lives. Because here's what we know. While the bread and the juice or wine was made by human hands, when we partake, we know that God is at work in us right now. So I invite you, prepare now for communion by praying with me a prayer of confession. God, we confess our sins to you. Too often we desire our ways over your ways, trust our ideas, depend on our strength, and hope in human actions instead of seeking your presence. We confess our sins to you. We have sinned in our thoughts in our words, and in our actions. We have contributed to the brokenness of the world, both by the things we have done and the things we have left undone. Not because we deserve it, but because you freely offer it, we ask the grace of your forgiveness. Because of Jesus Christ, heal us, we pray. Amen. And hear this good news. Just like Jesus' closest disciple said if you confess your sins, you can know without a doubt, 100% of the time, that God is faithful and just, and He will forgive all your sins. But it won't stop there. He will not only forgive your sins, but He will purify you, cleanse you, scrub you clean from any and all unrighteousness in your life, so that you can finally stop trying to be good enough, quit the rat race, quit trying, and embrace the radical power of stillness and confession so that God's light might break forth through your life.